You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Mitchell Lynch is founder and chief investment officer of Treetops Capital, an impact investment management company founded in 2008. He previously worked in finance at several institutions, including Bank of America and Credit Suisse. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Talk to me about Treetops Capital. What is that um, and what are you doing in this job? So uh, Treetops Capital is an impact investment management firm. Um, Impact investing, in case uh, you're unfamiliar with it, is investing with um, deliberate impact, generally social and environmental impact, but also trying to achieve financial returns. So there are certain areas that you can have both, you can have a market-based solution to a problem as opposed to just using philanthropic dollars to achieve that call. Um, And within the impact investing world, we focused, our first fund was in the microfinance area where it was focused in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, We also have a fund in Romania focused on agribusiness, so missing links into the value chain in in terms of the agricultural market there. And then more recently in Maine, we've been focusing on aquaculture investments. So how did you get interested in this type of work? So my interest in it really started uh, back in graduate school. I went to um, a program, it was an international public affairs program at Columbia, uh, that early on in my career, or before even my career really started, uh, the whole area of sustainable development was really starting to emerge. At that time, it was kind of after the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of money being thrown at issues and and with famine relief that weren't very effective. And what I kind of learned in in the graduate program is that in order for uh, programs to be sustainable, development to be sustainable, generally there needs to be a market-based element to that as well. So you don't crowd out uh, local, say if it's a famine issue, local farmers. Um, And through that program, it was kind of a good combination of learning about economic and political development, but also uh, getting some hard skills in in business and finance. As you're talking, I'm remembering the the 80s and I guess even into the 90s a little bit where we were trying to solve problems like um, failing farms or famine across the, the ocean and, you know, hands across America, like big, big relief programs that we all wanted to join into. And even then, there being some skepticism as to whether these things actually worked. Was this some awareness that you became 
um, is this something you became immediately aware of when you were watching this all unfold? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I learned more from some of the people who had been living through that for, for you know, those years where they, they realized there were a lot of unintended consequences to, you know, very, uh, what were good intentions of, of, you know, famine, for instance, the famine relief issue. And so what the, the really we focused on is how do you harness the market-based uh, issues and, and locally, how do you make sure that you're working within the, either the local capital markets or working with local business people? And, and at that point, microfinance, which was hardly known to anyone, was a big buzzword and I learned about how you can empower people with small business loans and how that can really affect people's lives much more than necessarily giving them a, a small donation. So give me an example of an unintended consequence. Um, unintended consequence in terms of, for instance, the, the, the famine issues were there was a lot of food flown in from the U.S. and Western Europe into, uh, it was mainly in Africa at the time where the, the famine was occurring. And what would happen is that the local farmers uh, could not compete with all the free uh, food coming in. And then they went out of business and they couldn't they couldn't pay their bills and keep their farms going so then you have a continuous circle of famine because you've you, you've kind of eliminated a lot of the farmers who are involved in that market it's actually really distressing to hear that that goes on especially given that most people who donate to a relief effort are hoping to do good not hoping to perpetuate a problem right and, and I think now in today's world and development world whether it's the UN or, or you know UNICEF or World Bank I think almost all the development institutions and I, I've worked with a lot of them they have this awareness and they're very um, aware of how you don't crowd out local markets when you're when you're trying to solve an issue. So I think we've moved on far from back in the 70s and 80s. Tell me how your organization has gone from um, focusing overseas to focusing on something that's very close to home in aquaculture. So when I moved up to Maine in, in 2011 and when I moved to Maine I was determined to do something more local. And um, I had spent most of my career in developing markets, and, and I find it interesting, and, and I think there's huge needs uh, that still occur. Uh, but also, I had this urge to do something closer to home, not to mention I have, uh, ha have a couple kids, and I wanted to not be on the plane as much. So um, when I started came to me and I started going to some of these aquaculture conferences that U of Maine were putting on and learning about different parts of that market and aquaculture particularly got me became interested because one Maine has a very good infrastructure for aquaculture I think in terms of the US we may be the leading state in, in aquaculture um, we have a lot of universities and research centers involved um, but also from helping the oceans and, and from a sustainability issue, I think aquaculture has to be part of the whole um, problem we're having with overfishing um, and different de degradation of, of, our, of, our, of our waters. So uh, that's, that's how I kind of, I started learning just by going to some of these sessions being put on and then, um, and then I started, uh, I, I got involved in an investment in a yellowtail uh, onshore farm called Acadia Harvest, which was the first yellowtail farm really in the U.S. 
and really interesting um, technology they were using. The fish were uh, being bought by um, some very high-end restaurants and distributors love the fish. And it was a way to have more local fish uh, without overfishing in terms of the water. Yellowtail is a tuna? Um, it's it. There is a yellowtail tuna. There's, and I actually don't. I, I don't know exactly which part of the species of yellowtail in terms of the broad, but um, uh, it's you know if you go to it's a high end fish that you if you go to a sushi restaurant yellowtail is quite um, quite common, and that's one of the uh, where I think one of the opportunities is in the aquaculture market is on the higher end fishes that are. Um, generally flown in 90% of the fish that we eat in America is not only it's, it's not only brought in from other countries but it's flown in so the uh, so if you can kind of eliminate flying in fish from say Japan or other places and growing it locally it has a huge impact I believe. Aquaculture um, so you've just described one type of fish does it also include things like oysters mussels seaweed or is there some other broader definition? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, sometimes there's other uh, terminology in terms of mariculture and the rest, but all, it's all under the aquaculture umbrella. And Maine, I think, is, is most known for its uh, shellfish aquaculture and as well as seaweed, which is becoming a very uh, big part of this industry in terms of aquaculture. And I partnered with um, a fellow named uh, Talif Olson, who had been one of the pioneers in farming uh, seaweed. And we created a business called Oceans Balance. And you know, our goal is to try to mainstream seaweed into Americans' diets. So it's not this exotic ingredient, but it's more of something you would eat in you know your everyday soup or, or stew. And it has so many positive benefits, both for the ocean as well as for your health. And uh, not to mention it has glutamates, these amino acids, which gives this umami flavor. So you can reduce some of the salt uh, intake in terms of um, other food you're eating. You're definitely um, singing a tune that I have sung before. I love seaweed. I think it's That's really great. important for health. And I actually, I, I, I believe that we are going to see with its increased use, um, decreased um, thyroid problems in our population in the state of Maine. That That's, yeah, that's a, a, something a lot of people don't are unaware of, but it does, yeah, in terms of the iodine and regulating thyroid uh, issues and, you know, and plus, you know, all of the other uh, vitamins, you know, 60 some odd vitamins and minerals, it is just this wonder food. And one of the, the things that impressed me most about um, seaweed, especially looking also at finfish aquaculture, the issue you have in finfish aquaculture, one of the tough challenges that we're re everyone's really trying to focus on is the input of forage fish, small fish, to feed the aquaculture fish. It's not a very sustainable business model, so they're coming out with other ingredients that can be used that are not forage fish um, to have fish meal. But in seaweed, it's the only zero input food I'm aware of where there's no other feed that's required that's not naturally occurring in the ocean. There's no pesticides, there's no fresh water. So from a, a just a pure sustainable type of food source, it, it's, it's unmatched as far as anything I've looked at. It also is known as um, something that essentially detoxifies the environment. 
I know that when they had their the nuclear reactor problem over in J Japan, that they were finding that the seaweed was using, they were using it as this kind of a giant sponge, I guess, to soak up a lot of the stuff that was being spewn out there. That 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 is definitely the case, and and um, we're we're looking at. Uh, issues in terms of coastal remediation, in terms of planting seaweed along um, more polluted parts of the coast, whether in Maine or, or elsewhere. Uh, this is something the, the, the Nature Conservancy is also evaluating, but um, you may be familiar with, uh, with the work that Nicole Price is doing at Bigelow Labs, where she has sensors around um, seaweed farms looking at how it changes the water column from uh, absorbing CO2 and, and uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. And so the, the studies are showing that it has a halo effect in the area where you plant seaweed, which is you know, positive from an acidification perspective, which also has an impact on our shellfish because the acidification is impacting the growth of, of, um, of shellfish. So I think there's all these untapped applications for seaweed way beyond just the food and, and fertilizer, which you hear most about. Um, the Department of Energy, just to give you an example, just put out a call for proposal and they gave out grants for $22 million. Maine absorbed some of that to scale up seaweed farming. Um, they're looking at it both from an energy source of biofuel, but other applications as well, because from, you know, there's beyond food, you have uh, food and fuel, you have fertilizer, you have animal feed, and uh, the list goes on from there. Does it interest you that you um, have all of this financial background, but you've really gotten drawn into the science of this, and more than science, sort of the ecology and all of the sustainability factors that are involved. That's a much bigger thing than just understanding finance. It is, and I think <clears throat> the kind of marrying those two parts together, having some, I'm really happy that I did spend some years working for some big financial institutions and learning how the markets work, how uh, some of the financial technology, and learning some of those skills. So having that exposure plus some development exposure and putting those together, I think, is, is, is a good combination. And I'm seeing more, you know, what's really encouraging to me is I'm seeing more and more students now who are kind of following that type of path where there's now kind of a defined world of like impact and, and investing and, and other areas of social entrepreneurs where it really didn't occur back when I was you know in school but now that's becoming more mainstream and I think a lot of issues that we're facing where you have people who kind of come from cross disciplines like that um, some some important issues can be solved talk to me about fish 2.0 yeah, Fish 2.0, um, which uh, I just got back from last week. It was at Stanford uh, University. They hold this about every year or two. And it's a, what they do, they, they've put it together as a contest to bring all different types of sustainable uh, uh, seafood and fisheries technology companies together to pitch new ideas and the reason they have it out at Stanford is you have Silicon Valley and you have a lot of new venture capitalists who are interested in maybe taking some of their earnings and wealth and putting it to some good use in terms of some of these new technologies that are emerging. So some of the areas that they're focusing on 
are these alternative fish feeds. So aquaculture becomes more sustainable. They make they make fish feed now out of uh, uh, algae or algae products, out of um, black soldier fly larvae, um, a whole mix of things. And these these were companies that presented on that. Also things like bycatch. So um, fish that are caught out on fishing vessels that the, the, the fishermen don't actually want. And they have now smart releases of, in their nets to, to allow those fish to, to uh, survive. A whole slew of, um, of interesting new developments going on in the, in the seafood world from the consumer perspective all the way to the fishermen and aquaculture. And it's just a great gathering of people um, and there's, you know, really one or two people put this all together. And I think they're having, you know, tremendous success in, in, uh, in changing our, the way our oceans are, are um, fished and uh, protect, protected. What lessons do you think that we here in Maine can learn from work that is being done across the nation and really across the world? I think Maine, um, Maine in, in some ways is a leader within the U.S. in a lot of aquaculture technology and, and new developments. And, um, but also there's a lot of issues going on overseas that I think Maine can learn from. And you know, my own hope is that Maine becomes more of also a technology hub with aquaculture where we have some of the bioscience, maybe people from Boston moving up. I know um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute is, is very interested in, in, in encouraging that and some other institutions here in Maine. We have, I think, almost all the right ingredients to really create a, a, a viable industry outside of just the production of, of farmed fish. And um, but a lot of that is, I think, requires bringing in some new people as well into the into the state who have certain science backgrounds to help this technology move forward. How do we get the people who have lived in Maine and have um, fished and farmed along the coast really for hundreds of years? How do we get them into conversations with people who are more on the technology side of things? So I think there's there's quite a bit of um, education going on right now with uh, with coastal communities with fishermen. Uh, the Island Institute is doing some great work. They just did a whole seaweed study to bring more um, more fishermen and lobstermen into the uh, seaweed industry. U of Maine puts on um, a whole slew of programs, which we're involved with some in terms of teaching aquaculture and the science of aquaculture to both students but also to adults, uh, to teachers. We did a, um, Talif and, and my um, colleague Lisa Scali did a, a boot camp for, for teachers this summer with the University of Maine to start getting them educated in terms of how aquaculture and science uh, mix together. So I think there are some really interesting um, developments going on and uh, I think just if, if, if more people are get involved in doing that, we'll see some transition going on with, uh, with some of the communities, local communities. And I would assume that there are things that people who are in aquaculture and biotech could actually learn from individuals who have been out there doing this type of work for decades. That that's yeah that's absolutely correct. It's I think it's a two way street in terms of the knowledge base and um, the the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I think they do a really good job in terms of bringing 
the fishermen together with other um, other constituents. So we learn from from them, and it's not just uh, you know scientists looking at this in, in a very sterile environment. Um, I'm, I'm a, a trustee at the Nature Conservancy in Maine, and uh, very focused right now on marine uh, science and, and changing uh, the focus away from just forestry, although forestry is still a key part, into looking at different solutions, whether it's you know from a, a river, the Penobscot River project, to uh, projects in the Gulf of Maine. One of the things that has been happening lately is uh, conversations around bringing environmental regulations, um, deciding whether they belong more at the state level, more at the national level. And this, it seems like that it would be really a problem if we decided that every state should really be responsible for whatever was going on within its borders and ignore the fact that the borders really don't mean anything to the trees and the rivers and things that grow. Yeah. What do you think about this? Um, yeah, I think I think there is some 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 issues. Uh, I think right now being decided at a at a local level. Luckily, I think within for Maine, uh, the local momentum for uh, you know creating sustainable aquaculture and some other programs is is moving in I think a good direction, and Maine can act as a I think a demonstration state for other. Um, states in our country that may be not as progressive. Um, so I, 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 you know, in terms of that balance between federal, there has to be, there has to be, um, I think, some strong federal uh, regulations. And in, so, in some ways, the U.S. Is, has some of the strictest regulations, you know, and I'm, I'm talking now about aquaculture because that's an area that I, I, I see this the most. Uh, and what what's going on is, or you know, you you were mentioning between federal and state, but it's also international. So the lowest common denominator countries, a lot of times, is where the production flows to. So some parts of Latin America or some parts of Asia. And really, what I would like to see is, you know, even at a federal level, more encouragement of sustainable aquaculture in the U.S. So we don't have so much production going overseas where we, we're not really paying attention because what's happening in, in South America can really impact us uh, where, where we live as well. What would you ideally like your children to grow up with? I know that you have two children, you're married, you live in Cape Elizabeth. You mentioned that they were when they were younger, you really wanted to kind of be more available to them as, as a parent. What type of world do you want to see them live in? I, I want I want one of the the main reasons I wanted to move to Maine and with the kids is having grown up coming to Maine a lot as a child and the nature here. I think just living in Maine with the wilderness and and being exposed to it and the people around you, I think that has like the biggest influence um, on my kids in, in in a very positive way. Um, I also uh, I try to expose them to some of the issues going on without scaring them. Um, some of the ecological issues going on in the world, and you know, showing them where they can have some impact in their in their lives. Um, but I think Maine, with with so much science, like with so many institutions in Maine, you know, whether it's GMRI doing the program for for sixth graders or fifth graders. Um, they have an awareness that I know, like w going back to 
you know, cities where, you know, we have some friends, you know, the kids are not growing up with that type of awareness around them. So I'm, I'm actually pretty hopeful uh, that my kids will be pretty evolved by the time, you know, they get to be adults and hopefully they pursue something that, you know, they're, they're very thoughtful in terms of, um, you know, what their career, the impact their career can have on the, uh, the, the world. What is your um, most interesting or exciting um, venture as of right now that Treetops Capital is a part of? So um, one of the most exciting ventures right now is a uh, project we have going on in Romania, which is a, uh, a mushroom compost factory, which is sounds kind of esoteric and not uh, something very well known, but they're actually r- very complex uh, f- factories or farms to put together, and, and they're, they're large investments. And M- Romania, for years, uh, for, for decades, they had imported compost, which is a very heavy substrate to import from Hungary and from the Netherlands. And that was having a, you know, just dampening any prospects of growing a real mushroom industry in Romania. And there was a lot of mushroom farmers who were just not able to compete with other countries. So we built with the help of the U.S. government as well, providing some financing and then private investors, uh, a full commercial-scale production facility for compost, which is now producing compost for small farmers, through uh, mushroom farmers throughout Romania. So that's exciting. That is fascinating. And along with seaweed, compost is another one of my favorite topics. So <laughs> I feel like we've got, we're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> I appreciate your coming in today. I've been speaking with Mitch Lynch Mitchell, who is the founder and chief investment officer of Treetops Capital, an impact investment management company founded in 2008. Keep up the good work. Great. Thank you very much. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.